Welcome, everybody, to episode 93 of Greater Than Code. My name is Astrid County, and I'm here with my friend Jessica Kerr. Good morning. I am very excited about this episode, and so is my fellow panelists, Rain Henrik. That is correct. I am extremely excited about this episode because our guest today is Eden Medina. Eden is Associate Professor of Informatics and Computing at Indiana University Bloomington, where she also holds affiliations with the Law School History Department Data Science Program and Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies. She is a prize-winning author who has published on topics as diverse as computer science education, the making of global corporate culture, crisis communication and infrastructure during natural disasters, big data and algorithmic regulation, free and open source software, the history and social study of technology, science and technology in Latin America, and the relationship of technology and politics. These are all things that we are interested in, so this is great. Medina received her PhD from MIT in the history and social study of science and technology. She holds a degree in electrical engineering from Princeton University and a master in studies of law from Yale Law School. At Indiana University, she teaches courses on social informatics, computer and information ethics, data and society, technology and the First Amendment, geographies of technology, history of technology, and the social studies of science and technology. She is an affiliated fellow of the Information Society Project at Yale Law School, a member of the Academic Council of the AI Now Institute, and editorial board member of Hispanic American Historical Review. So just a few things. You, you've done a few, a few things. <laughs> a few. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I think it's time to start out with our traditional first question, which is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I have some guesses. <laughs> well, first and foremost, I want to say that it's a pleasure to be here on the podcast. Um, I'm always excited when, you know, as a historian, I'm always excited when my work reaches out um, to people who are working in, in the tech sector or in different areas of technology. Um, so I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Um, in terms of a superpower, uh, so I've been thinking about this, and I think my superpower might be that I'm a patient learner and that I am patient with myself in the learning process. Um, so I do a lot of interdisciplinary scholarship, and in order to, to kind of sit in that interdisciplinary world, you have to be able to move you know, in different fields. And when you move from one area to the next, you have to start over. Um, and you are repeatedly confronted with how much you don't know. So you have to be able to read and listen and ask questions of really smart people that you fear are rudimentary and probably are rudimentary. So I think my superpower is that I've learned to be okay with that. I've learned to be okay with the learning process taking time and knowing that, you know, that eventually you'll get there, but you just have to be patient with the process. I feel like this is my lifelong struggle as an adult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds incredibly powerful and slow. <laughs> the good part is that you learn things pretty fast when you're surrounded by smart people who know more than you do, right, in, in the area that you're trying to, to learn more about. And I think that's also a good thing, right? And it's a good approach to, to learning and, and to being challenged. It is. So do you find that, like, your success in one field, and of course you're at the university and surrounded by people, do these smart people that you're asking questions of respect you for your knowledge in other fields? I mean, it's, it's hard for me to know that, <laughs> right? It's, I, I can't get into their heads, so I, I'm not sure. But I do think that scholars we tend to respect the expertise that other people have. And there are a lot of people out there who are very generous. They're generous with their knowledge. They're generous with sharing the things that they've known. Um, and some people are, you know, are generous in helping other people get into the field. So I've certainly been a, been a beneficiary of that as well. Are there, are there things that you you do consciously that help you to be more patient or to deal with you know, the feelings that arise that I'm not learning fast enough or I'll never get this or things like that? <laughs> um, I mean, I certainly feel anxiety of I'll never get this, but I think it's also experience. So I've done this a few times and, you know, you know that it takes multiple drafts, right, to get a piece of writing into shape. You know that it takes multiple talks with different communities in order to, to know that you're you're approaching the topic in a way that'll 
engage people from from different communities and and be able to engage with the kinds of issues that they're interested in. So I think a lot of it is is experience and kind of knowing that that you'll get there. So what what I'm hearing here is that Knowing that you've tried something like this before and been successful in the past helps you to take a new risk. I think so. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, the other thing that is that is really helpful is just listening. So just you know, listening to the conversations, listening to the kinds of terms, the language, what's important, and just being really humble about how much you don't know and, and how much you have to learn from others. So there, there's a thing that Virginia Satir says, and you can check this off of your bingo sheet if you're playing along at home. Uh, she says, you know, whenever I think about making a new change and it's scary or I'm worried about it, I think, well, I got here okay and I have all of the tools and, and the skills and the abilities that got me here to, to get me there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. And and the more times that you go through it, you just become more comfortable with the process. So, yeah, I, I would agree with that. So you are also in a field of constant learning and constantly like embracing ignorance in a way that lets you remedy it. <laughs> well, I don't know in, in terms of, of helping to remedy it. I, I, I would hope, right? I would hope that there are some contributions being made. But I think any of us who work in tech, because it changes so quickly, we're always scrambling in a way. Uh, so at IU, at Indiana University, I teach classes on the social, cultural, ethical dimensions of technology, and it changes quickly. There's always something new. So I think all of us who are working in these spaces, uh, we have to kind of embrace having to be constant learners. Since you are working in so many different spaces and having to encounter so many new things, how do you determine like when you've learned enough to feel comfortable to speak as an expert in any aspect of what you have you know, newly acquired? How do you set those goals? So if I'm working on a book project, it's going to take years. I mean, it's going to, because it's, it's a polished, finished project, right? And so once it goes out into the world, you've said your piece, right? It's not, I mean, you, you might get some dynamic interaction, but you're putting your expertise out into the world in ways that will get cited and people will engage with it. So that's, I mean, that's years and years and years if I'm starting to work through an idea, um, say for a talk, I've done that after I've done a research trip, right? And come back and said, these are my findings, these are my ideas, and you're engaging with a community that also has expertise. Um, so it's more dynamic and, and back and forth with the goal of helping you refine your ideas and make them better. So it really, it really does depend. Yeah, talk is like given in a particular context, and it's, it feels more like part of a discussion. Exactly. And everyone knows that it's a work in progress. Ah. Right? I mean, for an academic talk, a lot of times it's understood that it's a work in progress. Whereas a book, it's it's a published product. Is this kind of like the difference between the album and the live performance? Like, the live performance can be <laughs> technically worse, but somehow we enjoy it more because of the different context and the different expectations? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. It's more in the making, right? You're seeing how the person is, how they're doing their craft. They get energy from the audience, and, and the dynamics of the environment shapes uh, the kind of product that's being put forth. It's not something that's packaged. It's definitely received in a different way. Yeah, when I when I give a conference talk, I don't feel like I need to be an expert in what I'm talking about. Just that I, I have 30 minutes of stuff to say about it. Right, and some of the you know some of the more interesting parts are going to be the conversation at the end. So yeah, different forum. So speaking of craft, how did you go from earning a degree in electrical engineering? to getting a master's in law, to the PhD work that you did? Like, what kind of shaped that path that you took? I did things out of order. So I, I did an undergraduate degree in electrical engineering. And while I was there, while I was doing that work, it was just so striking to me how male-dominated the field was. I mean, a, a joke that, that we told amongst ourselves at the time was within our electrical engineering department, there were actually more men named John than there were women. There were six guys named John, wow. or there were five <laughs> women. Um, and I think because of that, I started wandering to other parts of campus. Um, and so I did a certificate in what at the time was called women's studies. I believe now it's called gender and sexuality studies. But women's studies just completely, it opened my eyes to the ways that technologies embody social dynamics, that they're the result of power relationships, that they're political 
And those are the things that really interested me. So when I graduated, when I completed my undergraduate degree, I started working in engineering, but it wasn't, it wasn't the best fit for me. And so I went to do my PhD at MIT in uh, what was then called the uh, History and Social Study of Science and Technology program. And they train people to use methods from history and anthropology to study topics in science and technology. And so for me, history just seemed like a great method for understanding the dynamics of how technologies are produced, right? You get to go to an archive and you get to read the correspondence of scientists or engineers or people who were involved in the policy side of things. And you get to actually see these nitty gritty dynamics of, of what you miss when you're coding, for example, or when you're, you're building a circuit. Um, so that was something that was really appealing to me. While I was there, I decided that I wanted to study Latin America. And so I retrained as a, as a historian of Latin America, uh, focusing on Chile. And then when I graduated, I got a wonderful job at Indiana University, which was building a brand new program in informatics at the time. School of Informatics, what's now called the School of Informatics, Computing and Engineering at Indiana University, began as a program in informatics, which is an interdisciplinary approach to computing. It's something that I think is just so forward thinking. And it was recognizing that computing is going into all different domain areas. And so therefore, you have to educate people who are, who are going into the tech field. You have to educate them in interdisciplinary ways. And so I was hired as someone who could come in and, and teach students about the social, cultural, political dimensions of technology, the ethical dimensions of technology. And then after I got tenure, I realized law would be useful to get at the kinds of issues that I was interested in. And so I applied for a fellowship that was a retraining fellowship that allowed me to do a one-year master's degree at Yale Law School. So it was a little bit out of order in the sense that I did a bachelor's, a PhD, and a master's degree. Um, but as someone who had just been through the tenure process and then got to go to law school and got to be thrown in with first-year law students and just have the exhilaration of, of being a student again in a completely different area, it was really, it was quite wonderful. Yeah, that's a lot of retraining. <laughs> I love the interdisciplinary point because I feel like uh, what we do when we build technology, it has so much impact and it can have so much more impact if we understand the many aspects of the world that we're interacting with. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Your book, I just read um, a paragraph a few minutes ago that defines cybernetics as the science of effective organization. We don't use cybernetics as a word really anymore. Can you give us some of the history of that? Sure. So right now, we're very interested in interdisciplinary collaborations and thinking about technology and computation in interdisciplinary ways. But perhaps the hallmark for interdisciplinary thinking uh, in computation and the sciences is cybernetics. So cybernetics is, uh, is a post-World War II science. Um, it was coined or it's often attributed uh, to Norbert Wiener, who was an MIT mathematician. And a common definition is that it's the science of communication and control in the animal and the machine. So it's looking at commonalities between biological, mechanical, social systems. Um, and it's interested in how they regulate, how they regulate themselves, how they regulate other systems. Uh, so Norbert Wiener uh, is an MIT mathematician, and he is asked during World War II to begin conducting research on a gun that's capable of shooting down an aircraft. So the big problem there is you have to be able to predict where the aircraft is going to be so that you can aim the gun so that you can shoot it down. And that's a problem of feedback, right? You have to fire, you have to see what the difference is, and then you have to adjust for future positions. And so he begins work on this problem, and he's working with a Mexican uh, physiologist named Arturo Rosenbluth, and they're talking about commonalities between biological and uh, electrical systems. And he notices that in certain moments, the gun that he's designing will swing back and forth wildly. And he makes this connection and says, ah, oh, this is very similar to a biological process known as a purpose tremor. And so these conversations that are trying to bring uh, commonalities in biological, mechanical, electrical systems 
people start to become interested in this. And there's a series of conferences that take place mostly in the 1950s, known as the Macy Conferences, that brought together luminaries in mathematics, medicine, in social sciences like anthropology. So Gregory Bateson and Margaret Mead were involved in this community. Um, and they start to think about the world in terms of systems, in terms of feedback, in terms of control. And these metaphors migrated all over the place. Um, so cybernetics was a term um, that was very much in vogue uh, in the 1950s, right after the post-World World War II period. But as you point out, it's not a term that we use very often now. Um, and there are different theories for why that is. Um, although you can certainly see the influence of cybernetics in areas of complex systems or different system sciences. It definitely has its legacy today. So you were talking about the American origins of cybernetics, but there's also a, a British tradition that is in some ways very different in origin and in focus. Could you maybe describe the, the history of that and compare those? Sure. With a caveat that I'm going to be doing some gross overgeneralizing here. But in general, the U.S. story of cybernetics is seen as being grounded in, in the Defense Department, right? It comes out of wartime research. It's interested in problems of control and feedback. The British side of the story, um, and there's a, there's a great book on this by a historian of science named Andrew Pickering called The Cybernetic Brain. It shows that the British cyberneticians are more interested in, I guess, what you would call cognitive science or the study of the brain. Um, I think and, it was sort of neuroscience before that was really a thing. Right. I mean, they're interested in, in the functioning of the brain and how do you understand these really, really complex systems, right, that you can't model in precise detail or you can't draw as a, as a complete system diagram. They're going to have to be probabilistic. Um, and so it does have a different point of origin. Um, so, for example, have you ever seen Gray Walter's tortoises, the turtle robots? I haven't. If you go to YouTube and you Google Gray Walter tortoises, you'll see these very early robots that respond to light stimulation. So it's just a very simple system that through a very basic set of rules can have very complex sets of behaviors, right? So they're interested in, in kind of imploring complexity as understood through behavior rather than understanding all of the inner workings of how a system operates. So you, you gave a definition of cybernetics earlier, and I've seen a lot of them. Uh, mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things is, they, is that they all are quite different. There's a general focus on self-correction and feedback, but then you have something mm -hmm. like Gordon Pask's definition. Uh, Gordon Pask was a British cybernetician. His definition is that cybernetics is the science or the art of manipulating defensible metaphors. Huh. That's interesting. Maybe because the metaphors of cybernetics had spread so broadly. Right. And I, <laughs> it's about metaphors. How do you make sure that metaphors are applicable widely and that when you have an idea about something that it can translate efficiently and that information is preserved and things like that? Right. And in fact, that's one of the criticisms of cybernetics, that it became the metaphors traveled so far and wide um, and just took root in many different fields in many different places that cybernetics lost its core meaning, um, or rather that it was seen as something that was, I don't know, like a metaphor that could travel rather than a science that, that in and of itself had substance. Wow, so it was like so interdisciplinary that it sort of dispersed into all the other disciplines? In, in a way, yes, in a way. And if you think about, you know, the ways that we think about feedback or system sciences, right? I mean, those kinds of metaphors are, are everywhere. There's a book by Ronald Klein who looks at the history of cybernetics um, and also, you know, puts forth ideas as to what happened to cybernetics as a discipline. Uh, but part of it certainly is that the metaphors and the language just went everywhere. So they kind of took on a sheen of a pseudoscience. Yeah, it's really interesting. What, what I've noticed is that now some, you know, 70 years later, a lot of the original learnings of cybernetics have been sort of diffused throughout other communities, and, and but we've largely forgotten the origins. Like if you think about Agile, the software development methodology, in a way that's like if a cybernetician was asked to design a software development methodology from first principles, they might come up with something like Agile. Because it's, yes. about, it's about feedback systems and, and you know, other things like that. Okay, I see what you're saying. But and, no and similarly, Agile has 
dispersed until it means nothing. But like <laughs> very few people doing agile ever talk about like what we can learn from cybernetics or general systems theory that might be applicable in this domain. And that's interesting. Well, also in anthropology, we have this concept of cyborg anthropology, which when you tell people, they think it's made up uh, because it sounds like, ooh, from the future, cyborg anthropology. But it is about, you know, how machines and humans work together and how those systems feed off each other and how the technology we make reflects the people that we are. And then the people that we are is influenced by the technology that we make and that's cool because, yeah, because even if as individuals we're still pretty strongly biological, as teams and as cultures, we're totally socio-technical. Well, you can make the argument that we have always had technology in some way. Like the first time somebody took a stick and got ants out of something, they started to use tools. And that the way that we use tools has a big effect on how we do everything else and how we understand the world and all the rest. Yeah, McLuhan's Law. We shape our tools and our tools shape us. I, I think there's also something directly relevant to cybernetics here, uh, which is that like the technologies and the tools that we've built have become more complex over time to the point where to use modern technology, you have to know almost nothing about anything in detail. You can be competent as a computer user without knowing how to manufacture a CPU. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're all working with these systems that are too complex for any one person to fully understand. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, at best, we grasp the behavior of the system, but sometimes we don't even grasp that. Mm-hmm. I mean, cybernetics is it's it's all over. So, for example, there is a shift in cybernetics between first order and second order cybernetics In first order cybernetics. Right. You had the scientist who was looking at the system and trying to understand it. Um, second order cybernetics puts the observer into the equation. Right. And says that this reality is being observed and and mediated by a person, right? You can't take the observer out of the equation, Uh, which for me, when I was an undergrad, you know, it was the time when postmodern theory was really in its heyday, um, which is all about the subjectivity of the observer and how you can't take the observer out of the understanding of of the text, for example. So these ideas, they they continue until today. Yeah, that was actually uh, Gordon Pask's area of study, He wrote a book called The Cybernetics of Human Learning and Performance. And the basic premise is that humans that try to control systems have to both be a controller and a learner at the same time. And how does that work? Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, for example, in my work, I study a a Chilean biologist uh, named Umberto Maturana. And some of his path-breaking work back in the 40s was studying the frog's eye. And so looking at how the frog's eye acts as a, as a mediator, as an interpreter uh, for the, what the frog's brain interprets, right? And you can't, you can't understand what the brain is getting unless it is being mediated by the frog's eye. So, yeah, in terms of perception, roles of the, the individual learner, it's there. There's, there's also the somewhat fringe theory in the psychology of the human mind that Consciousness isn't a thing. There's just our perceptions of other people's behavior that lead us to believe that they're conscious. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get into that, <laughs> but, but, but it is, but in, in, a, in some ways it is about what we can interpret as behavior, right? That what's beneath that is a black box, right? So we can try to understand the black box by looking at behavior, which is, you know, a, a cybernetic approach to a, to the problem. So yes, there is some kind of some kind of commonality there. Yeah, it really makes the role of the observer central. Mm-hmm. And also it understands that the observer is acted on by the system just as much as the other way around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Speaking of the effects of technology on politics and vice versa, uh, the book that we're supposed to be talking about, <laughs> Cybernetic Revolutionaries, takes place in Chile in like 1969 to 73? 1970 to 73. And there, the the Chileans, with some help from Britain, they built a computer system that was unlike anything the world had built before. The American experts are like, that's not even possible in that amount of time. And then it wouldn't have been for the American experts, but the Chileans. And with severely limited resources. Yes, yes. So they couldn't do it the way, the right way that the Americans knew. 
Uh, but they did build something. But then it was interesting that the politics that went into it and the pol- politics that were perceived from outside were very different. So maybe it would be good to start by sort of setting the scene a little bit. Eden, could you maybe give us like the quick background story here of how Project CyberSign came about? What was the sort of, you know, significant events in the history of Chile that preceded it? And what the political climate was like? Sure. So Project CyberSign was a computer system that was developed during the government of Salvador Allende. Salvador Allende was a democratically elected uh, president, and he was president of Chile from 1970 to 1973, when a military coup occurred um, and put General Augusto Pinochet in power for the next 17 years. So we're dealing with the period from 1970 to 1973. Allende and his coalition, which was known as Popular Unity or Unidad Popular, um, won on a platform of peaceful socialist change. So this is during the height of the Cold War, right? You have the U.S. on one side, you have the Soviet Union on the other side. People in the United States, politicians in the United States are living in fear of communist revolution. And Chile comes in and they say, we're going to try a third way. We are going to have a socialist revolution that respects the existing constitution. It respects the rule of law. It respects existing civil liberties, including freedom of speech and freedom of the press. But at the same time, we're going to make significant changes to uh, existing social and economic structures in the country. So, for example, uh, the government planned to nationalize the most important industries in the country. So not nationalize all the industries, but they did want the state to take control of the most important industries. Um, There was a program to redistribute wealth in the country so that members of poor and working classes would have more. Um, And this could be done through a land reform program in the countryside, or it could be done through raising wages, through lowering unemployment, through making consumer goods more available uh, to people so that they could raise their standards of living. So this is the context in which this computer system uh, was developed, and it was developed to solve a very specific problem. Namely, it was dissolved so that the government could win what they called the battle of production. So the battle of production is a very, uh, it's reflective of a specific theory in economics. So if you are going to try to redistribute wealth, and you're going to try to raise salaries, and you're going to try to make consumer goods more available, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, One of the dangers is that you're going to have inflation, right? More people have more money, more money to buy stuff, right? Uh, Your currency is going to lose value, and you're going to have inflation. But there was a countervailing theory that said you won't have inflation if you can produce more. If you produce more goods, then people will be able to spend their money on goods and you'll be able to keep the economy healthy. So the Chilean government in this moment was in a very, I would say, delicate position of it needed to have production at a minimum stay the same, but ideally go up. And they were taking over the most important industries in the country. And they had not done this before. This was something that was new to the government. It was new to the state. Um, And also, they didn't have the expertise to run the textile factory, the steel factories, et cetera, et cetera. They were also dealing with sanctions and trade embargoes. Right, which was becoming increasingly clear. So what I'm talking about right now is kind of the, the beginnings of the popular unity government. But as time would go on, the United States would increasingly uh, um, impose what is called an invisible blockade, where it would try to intervene and interfere in the Chilean economy um, to make it more more difficult for the, the economy to, to succeed, to be healthy. Because the U.S. was not okay with a socialist revolution succeeding and being like a better place. Absolutely not. I mean, this is the height of the Cold War. Um, The Cuban revolution had just happened. The views of Chile becoming communist or becoming socialist uh, were likened to putting Latin America in a red sandwich, right? You have these two opposite ends of the region going communist. Oh my gosh, the rest of of the region is going to fold. And that's in the same hemisphere as the United States. So that was seen as a, as a national security threat. So this is the context in which the system was developed. Uh, There was a man named Fernando Flores, 
who at the time was the technical director of the state organization charged with the nationalization process. And he was familiar with cybernetics. Uh, he was an engineering graduate. And so he thought that perhaps cybernetics might have something to say about how the state could could manage this economic transition. Um, you know, as he said, you know, Marx alluded to, you know, this kind of transition, but he didn't give, you know, a step-by-step -step plan as to how to, to carry it out. So he looked to cybernetics and he invited a, a British cybernetician named Stafford Beer to come to Chile to begin to think of a way that the state might be able to manage the national economy and win the battle of production. And they decided to create a system which I'll call a technical system, but it was a technical organizational social system that would give the government the ability to see what was going on in the economy and improve its decision making. The system was called CyberSyn, which is a combination of two words, uh, cybernetics and synergy. And it had a customized software that would look for statistical patterns in production. It had a very futuristic looking operations room. It had a national communications network uh, that was based off of telex machines, and it had a, an economic model um, that was based off of a, a compiler known as Dynamo that would allow policymakers to play with their ideas before they were implemented. And so collectively, those four parts were known as Project Cybersyn. And Cybersyn, it was conceived entirely to support the democratic socialism of giving the people more say, and um, also, I guess, more economic uh, production. And yet the rest of the world took it as the opposite, took it as command and control and totalitarianism. Right. So so there are a lot of interesting things in, in the comment that you just said. So yes, from one perspective, the system was designed to support Chilean socialism, Chilean democratic socialism, by increasing participation, for example, uh, and, and more things can be, can be said about that. Um, but it also was to help the political program of the popular unity by making their economic project succeed, right? So it was the technology in support of the politics, but also changing the relationships around the technology in ways that were in agreement with, with the political project of democratic socialism. Um, but the other part that I hear in your comment was about how it was read internally within Chile and how it was read externally. And so one of the things that the book does is it looks at international reactions to the system and how they're read through the lens of the Cold War. And so within Chile, there is this discourse of, oh, it's science for people, right? It's something that's going to help make the socialist experiment succeed. And outside of Chile, it's seen as something akin to 1984 and George Orwell. It's seen as something um, that's going to take away civil liberties, that's going to lead to an oppressive state, that's going to lead to greater surveillance that will be oppressive to workers. So there are very different views of the system that are a reflection of the Cold War context. So we're back to the part where what you observe says at least as much about you as about the thing you're looking at. <laughs> Absolutely. And also within, within Chile, they were able to achieve a lot technically, but yet because they did not succeed so well at getting the social pieces of the system on board. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this was an amazing design and plan that was implemented by fallible and biased humans and, and, and what, you know, what effect that had. And, and they didn't even have like phones everywhere. They, they, these people didn't have modems. They had telex machines with which were like those loud things right and and they had people on each on each end telex and the mainframe right so a very different technological universe than what we're accustomed to today which shows first of all um how forward thinking the people were who were involved in this project um but also how sophisticated you can be using older technologies I mean, as you're saying, phones weren't commonplace. Um, they weren't everywhere, let alone computers. At the time, there were 50 computers in the entire country, and the most uh, sophisticated ones were owned by the government, but you know, only a handful. So it's a very different uh, technological landscape. Um, but even in that landscape, you can have some very creative and innovative uses of older technologies. And anyone who has 
worked at an early stage startup will see some eerie parallels here. So they built this system uh, that seemed to be automated and what was running it underneath the hood was people typing into telex machines and graphic artists literally drawing charts and putting them up on the wall every day. Absolutely. And I, I really like that connection. I like that parallel between startup culture, where I imagine you're just trying to get something up and running so that it looks good, but perhaps it's you know held together by uh, a lot of electrical tape, uh, figurative electrical tape underneath. Right. So there are a lot of instances of those uh, kinds of human labor intensive fixes uh, in this project. So one of my favorites is if you see a picture of the operations room from the CyberSim project, it's very futuristic. It looks like something out of a Kubrick film. Fiberglass chairs, you have panels on the wall that you know look like they could be flat panel displays. But that's achieved by this very low-tech, I don't know, this low-tech illusion of having slide projectors that are placed behind the wall that are projecting slide images of economic data onto the screens so that they look like flat panel screens, but they're not. There are buttons in the armrest that are advancing the slide carousel. And in order to make the slides, uh, some of Chile's best graphic designers are drawing them by hand. So it's very labor intensive, but all in the service of making this kind of automated modernity seem possible. It's, it's fascinating to me that they had this idea of how they wanted to interface with the system and the technology wasn't there. So they had to find another way. Right. And it was made even more difficult by the invisible blockade. So simple things like being able to get spare parts, being able to get ball bearings so that the, the base of the chair could switch, right? You couldn't get the ball bearings. Being able to get slide film, right? That was something that was really hard to get in Chile. So there definitely was a, there were conditions of constraint that the, the engineers and designers were working under. The products that didn't exist in Chile and then the export embargo or the embargoes that made it really hard to import those things. And then the knowledge that they didn't have in Chile to build those products. And one of the most interesting outcomes for me, Project Cybersynth, was the transfer of knowledge in software in particular from Britain to Chile. Huh. Like they learned about testing and documentation. Right. And documentation, yep. And like software techniques that we would think of as, well, that's completely obvious. How would you ever think of doing it without it? No, it's obvious to us only because we've grown up in that. It's like right. water to a fish. Right. I mean, in many ways, so if you think, you know, that the IBM 360 mainframes, right, they came out in the mid-1960s. This is the early 1970s. It's still, it's still not ubiquitous, right? And so some of these practices also are not ubiquitous. Even things, so one story that I heard Practices like numbering punch cards, that wasn't something that was standard practice. So one of the head programmers of the project told me this anecdote that they had all these punch cards and they dropped them. And then they had to figure out what order to put them back into. So yeah, these practices weren't automatic. They weren't standard. And it's interesting as a historian to see where those practices come from or, or how they travel or under what circumstances. I also found it pretty fascinating. The flip side of that is that Stafford Beer didn't come into this technolo technologically primitive society and have to tell everyone how computers work. There was a lot of native, you know, Chilean technical competence that they were able Absolutely. to build on. Absolutely. So when Stafford Beer arrives in Chile, he arrives in Chile in 1971. Um, Chile has it already has a national computer enterprise. It has its own computing machines and it's running uh, computer programs doing uh, computer processing for the government. So they have a dedicated computer agency and other state organizations have their own computing power and other companies have their own computing power. So it's not as if there are no computers in the country or a lack of expertise. He was working with some very talented people. And I, it's interesting when we think about sort of the birth of, of this industry and where all of this technological investment came from, we generally think of the Turing's and the Shannons and the McCarthy's. We think about, you know, MIT and Oxford and, and places like this, but there was a lot going on in other parts of the world that's generally forgotten about. One of the things that I hope to do with my research is to be able to tell stories that show that computing is global. 
that it is a global phenomenon, that it is not just a U.S. story. It's not just a European story. Uh, there are computing histories everywhere. And moreover, if we want to see different technological possibilities, we need to look at histories of computing that unfurl during very different political moments in very different geographic, cultural, historical contexts. So in some ways, Project Cybersyn was possible because it was part of a political experiment that kind of opened the doors of possibility, um, including to, to possible technical paths that weren't possible in the U.S. They, they couldn't happen in the United States. So I think that, that this emphasis on global history and, and moving beyond the well-worn narratives of, of computing is, is important. I have a, a little anecdote here that really stunned me. Uh, when I was first trying to learn about Project Cybersyn, I, I did what you would usually think of to do. I went to Amazon and I searched for Project Cybersyn and I thought, well, I'll just buy all the books. And there were zero results. This, Despite the fact that your book is sold on Amazon. Ha! Huh. So this is an algorithmic moment. And I, it's gone down a memory hole and I don't know why exactly. I can't tell you. I don't. I don't know why either. It's it's fascinating. Um, I don't know how much of it is just obliviousness. How much of it is purposeful, in an attempt to you know to conform to the to the narrative that we were just talking about about sort of the the you know Western dominance of of you know technology things like that. I don't really know, but it, I was just amazed. I when I thought, well, it's on Wikipedia. Surely Amazon will have books about it, and no results. It thought I uh, it thought I had typoed. So anecdotally, I just put in Cybersyn to Amazon, and my book does pop up. There's now a, a smaller French translation of an earlier article I did on the, the Cybersyn history, and that also pops up. Huh. But it, it could be maybe there's a filter bubble going on. I don't know. It just goes to show that the availability of knowledge is, is different from its accessibility. Yeah, and that the Amazon algorithms are not infallible. No kidding. Yeah, so I get it's much better to have smart people to ask questions of. Right, right. So there, we were talking about all of the work that went on under the hood to make Project Cybersyn work. And there was one thing that really fascinated me that I wanted to talk about specifically. And I suspect that a lot of people who are familiar with SRE will see a lot of parallels here. To get the information they needed from the factories to understand to observe production and figure out what was needed where and things like that. The plan that they devised, if I remember correctly, was to send technicians, to send to train cybernet cyberneticians, and then send them to these factories to observe the factories, to talk to the workers, to formulate a model of how the factory functioned, and then to sort of boil that model up into a few of what we today might call KPIs that represented the production capabilities of the factory, and then send those via telex to the command center. Is that, is that about right? So there was a, when they were building the, the software, the customized software, which was known as, as CyberStride, I mean, your description, it, it's pretty, it's pretty on point. So operations research scientists and engineers would go into the factories. They would have been tasked to talk to the workers, to, to get the workers knowledge so that it could be incorporated into the software model. In reality, they might have talked to the manager uh, <laughs> as opposed to talking to the workers themselves. Uh, and in interviews I, I did with people who were, who were doing the work, they said that they were coming in as technical experts, as university-educated technical experts. And so they had a bit of a superiority complex, right, that they had the technical knowledge and they went in um, and that they could figure out the modeling without having to, to consult the workers on the shop floor. It's really interesting. These are the sort of biases that get in the way of, of the plan, right? That get in the way of the design, which was to focus on, you know, democratizing the knowledge of the workers, right? And, and, and building on that knowledge. Right. So certainly from one angle, absolutely, right? So they're tasked with you know, augmenting worker participation, but class bias gets in the way. Uh, technical superiority, right? The sense that you have the technical knowledge, so therefore you know better, right? That that gets in the way. But from another perspective, if you look at the context of what all was going on in the Chilean economy and on the Chilean shop floor during this period, there was so much activity uh, in terms of trying to maintain production, in terms of union activity, in terms of the politics of the shop floor, that workers were doing a lot of things. 
so we might even think to what what degree would it have been feasible to have workers stop what they're doing to try to help operations research scientists build these models. Um, so I think it can it can work both ways. Um, but certainly there was that bias on the part of the technical experts going into the factory that they knew better. And so then they would create their plans based on what they knew, and that would form the basis for how the software, the indices that would be coded into the software. One of the things that I point out in the book is the system was it, it was ended. It was ended by the coup before it had a chance to, to come to full implementation. But we might wonder long term what kind of implications it could have had for the workers if their knowledge was encoded in a software system. So, you know, we could think perhaps of, of the designers being a little bit naive and thinking that this would empower workers. It could also disempower workers. And there wasn't much of a conversation about that. Which gets to the part of the same technology in a different social context is not the same technology. Absolutely. And one of the ways that I look at that, so I, I put forth this idea of socio-technical engineering, because if you think about the, the artifact or the technology or the object, clearly if it's in different context, it's not going to be the same kind of tool. But often what changes is that social network and organizational network around that system, right, that, that helps shape the way that it's used. So if you're in a democratic socialist environment, where the data is coming into a computer control room and the people who are in the control room aren't sharing that data with higher levels of government and they're just letting factory operators do their thing, then maybe it preserves factory autonomy. But if the people who are in that you know, computer control room are sending all the data upward to higher echelons of government, it could be a form of top-down control. Um, it's about that larger socio-technical system. I, I think... This is maybe an interesting application of Conway's law, which is that computer systems are mirrors of the communication structures of the teams that build them. There was this idea that they wanted to build Cybersyn to be in line with the values of um, the democratic socialist government. and But there, there was a lot of pushback from you know the upper class and from the factory owners and things like that. How much do you, there's a lot of conflict at the social political level. How much do you think that affected the technology? So I think one of the things that, that studying this history does is it opens up that whole question of technologies reflecting the values of the people that are building them by asking whose values, right? Who within the team, um, you know, under what circumstances. So one of the things that we see in this history is that different members of the team had different ideas on how the, the system should work and had different ideas about how Chile's revolution should unfurl. So on one hand, if you are building a system that helps manage the economy, right, that's upholding a political goal that's affiliated with the popular unity so does it matter if there isn't any worker participation, right? That the project is political. It's helping the popular unity succeed. And for some, they viewed that as a form of technocracy. So there were internal charges of technocracy among different members of the team. If you're a person who says we need to have more worker participation, we need to call it the people science, we need to get workers involved in, in building the software, but that isn't feasible at this particular moment. You know, is that political in, in, in a way that, that you know, uh, helps the popular unity achieve its goals? You know, there are different ways of viewing this. And all of these views were present in the way that the technology was being built, right? The technology hadn't solidified yet because it just didn't have time to. So there really are a number of different ideas uh, about values and what those values should be and how those values should shape the way that a system operates. And then it felt like they tried to build a technology in order to change the system, but it but providing the technology isn't enough to change the social system, to get people to use it as intended. But in order to help their work, it's the social system that has to change. Right. And yet right. the technology did get used in other ways that did fit into the social system, like they used the, the telex communication network to coordinate during that big strike. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's fascinating because I generally prefer systems that are more democratic, but in times of crisis, a more hierarchical system can often be more efficient. And it's interesting to me that 
the most obvious success case for Project Cybersyn was in, in a time of crisis where they were, on one hand, able to use this sort of vertical communication structure, but on the other hand, they were able to enable truck drivers to communicate directly with factory owners. So it's interesting to me that it sort of challenges my assumption the hierarchical structures are, you know, what's needed in a time of crisis. Right. And the hierarchy was flatter than it would otherwise have been because they had this broader communication reach. Right, right, right. So one of the things that you see in this history is that the tech is easy, right? The tech problems are the easy problems. The social problems, the organizational problems, those are the hard problems, right? That's the harder part from an engineering standpoint. Engineering the tech, even with all of the constraints that they were working under, those are easier things to to design, build, fix, etc. And as you mentioned, the truck driver's strike which was a massive strike uh, that was brought about to try to end the Allende government, to try to bring it to, to a premature end. One of the reasons it succeeded is that it connected government communication at, at you know, the top to events that were unfurling in the factories on the shop floor as people were trying to get around the truck driver strike by finding trucks that weren't striking that could still distribute goods or by maintaining factory production. Um, so these on-the-ground grassroots networks of factory workers and, and people from communities, the Telex network allowed communication between the government to these dynamic activities that were taking place on the ground. Yeah. So it wasn't an either-or. It wasn't horizontal or vertical. It was thinking of ways to integrate them so, in this case, the government could survive. Didn't they actually sort of repurpose the telex machines to transmit, like, logistical information? You know, I need this. I have this. How yep. are we going to get it there? Yep, absolutely. Uh, I just sent a truck that was carrying gasoline, or I have this truck available. Yep. And, you know, this, this road is blockaded here, and you'll have to go around. Correct. So it was creating new communications channels, allowing the dynamic flow of information, um, connecting the government to the grassroots movement, um, and through those those changes or innovations, creating new opportunities for governance. So this, this communications network was a powerful technology, and it did change the system. Well, like any complex system, you can change it, but you're not going to know how. <laughs> I, I love that this is a sort of concrete example of organizational learning, like I think our best understanding of how learning works in the human brain is that it involves forming new pathways and connections. And that's literally what they did on the ground between these different factories. Which is what Stafford Beer, who was the British cybernetician, it's what he hoped to do with his cybernetics. So he was known as, as someone who did management cybernetics. And he wanted to figure out a way to change the structure of systems, to create new channels of communication, new ways for systems to regulate themselves and interact with other complex systems so that they could all reach conditions of, of homeostasis. So in this sense, the truck driver strike and the use of the telecom in this way, it did create new communications channels and it did allow the system to reach its, its state of stability for people who are pro-popular unity, right, in, in a way that was beneficial to them. So what I find pretty interesting about this conversation and about the stories that are in the book is that it seems like the political systems are inextricably linked to the technological systems and vice versa, which is a different way of thinking about the tools we're building. Uh, because, like, as you said, Eden, your tools are going to be used, which is going to be determined by the environment. And if the environment shifts, those tools could have a completely different use than what they were being used for. So I know that you also talk about ethics and you teach about ethics. So how do you, with this level of understanding that this, this could happen, how do you try to create ethically sound tools when you may not be able to predict the way the political systems will change and how that can affect how those tools could be used. Mm -hmm. So the way that I teach my undergraduates to start to think about the ethics of building technological systems, I begin by trying to show them the ways that the social matters. I mean, I remember way back in the day when I was an engineer, the emphasis was on problem sets. Is this the right answer? Uh, does your code run? Right? They're very kind of technical answers of right or wrong, where the social is cut out of, of the equation. 
So to try to bring the social back in into the ways that that I teach uh, informatics and the ways that my students understand the kinds of work uh, that technologies do in the world. Um, one of the ways that I teach about Project Cybersyn to my students is I talk about the operations room and the interface from the operations room. So as I mentioned, the Cybersyn operations room is this very futuristic space. It looks like something out of a science fiction film. And I also mentioned a bit about the interface, so how you would see these images that would pop up on the screens that were projected from slide projectors that were located behind the wall. But these slide projector carousels were connected to a series of buttons that were on the armrest of the chairs. And they were designed as, quote, big hand buttons, because people who are designing uh, the interface, they wanted the buttons to be big to encourage pounding. So that if you wanted to make your point, you could pound on the buttons and you would stress your point, And then all of a sudden the image would change. Um, they also wanted the buttons to be in geometric shapes instead of a traditional keyboard. Uh, the geometric shapes were deemed to be more accessible to workers who might, you know, who might not be literate. Um, but also in those days, a, a keyboard uh, was a technology that was used by a female typist. So if members of the government elite were coming in, they may not know how to use a keyboard because they always had a female secretary. And when you see some of the notes about the project, there is talk about this interface being a way to eliminate the girl and bring the user closer to the machine, which I find fascinating. I mean, in their case, they're talking about, you know, a, a female secretary, but it also, you know, it, it speaks to who's allowed in the room, right? Who is given access to decision making? Who's going to be using the technology? And what kind of assumptions do we make about uh, who's going to be using the technology? So I use this example to teach my students that even when we're imagining utopian societies, right, even when we're thinking about remaking economic, social, cultural ways of being in the world, our biases and our assumptions still travel with us. And they can affect something that we perceive as neutral, like interface design, right? We wouldn't think about a keyboard as something that's political. Um, but under these conditions, they, they it clearly was. So that's the kind of conversation that I try to have with my students so that they start to see how politics, power, culture, society has very real effects on the kinds of technologies that we build. And they, in turn, have very real effects on, on who can use these systems. So whenever we hear utopia, we, we should ask, utopia for whom? Exactly. Exactly. Or when you hear this technology is best, best for whom, right? That's something I, I drill into my students. Okay, I have to ask, what does this say about Twitter and Facebook today and the power <laughs> those companies have? Let me take it from a different perspective. Um, so before getting to, to the political question, from a data perspective, one of the things that I feel this history shows us is that you can make really useful, sophisticated systems that are grounded on the idea that you can only collect limited amounts of data. So in the case of Project Cybersyn, we're talking about computers you know, that were built in the 1960s, um, early 1970s, that actually couldn't store, record, and process the same level of data that, that we generate and process today. And that translated into very real engineering decisions. So when the engineers or operations research scientists went to the factories, they could only collect 10 or 12 indices of data from the factory, right? They were limited in the amount of data that they could collect. And that helped make the program simpler, right? Because they, uh, they had fewer indices that they were tracking. It made certain phenomena more visible, but at bottom, it also meant that you were making decisions about the future of the economy from a comparatively small data set from what we would think of as sufficient for today. And I think now we often have this stance of it's good to collect the data because we can, because it might be, re it might be useful at some time in the future. And I think we're seeing with Facebook and Twitter and many other platforms uh, and, and tech companies that collecting all the data because we can has serious ethical, legal ramifications, some of which we're not even aware of until down the line when maybe the government is trying to get access to the data or it's being sold to a political campaign. Because those ramifications depend on the observer. 
the ramifications, sure, they depend on the observer, but they also depend on, I mean, to go back to the politics question, right? It depends on the political context. It depends on how companies are being regulated or not. There are so many issues at play. And having the default stance of collecting large swaths of data uncritically because we can, that's a choice. And I think Project Cybersyn reveals that that's a choice and it could be otherwise. Is it reflection time? Okay, I can go first. This is really deep. I feel like I have an entire reading list, which I would really love, Eden, actually, if you could leave like a list or something and maybe we could put it on a show notes of some books to read. Uh, sure. But I really liked a point that you brought up that we talked about a little bit, which was the power dynamics that are already baked into our tools and talking about that more. Because I think that it's still something that is very new as a concept in the technology that we use and also in the, te- in the technology that we build. And I also really liked that you uh, shined a light on the fact that the history of computing is global and that we need to learn more about other ways and other peoples who have contributed to where we are and also consider that what we need going forward is not going to come out of a Western country and maybe it shouldn't anyway because we probably need to be looking for other methodologies for how to keep moving forward. It also reminded me about how young computing really is when you look at how short the history is compared to a lot of other disciplines that have huge effects on our lives. That's very true. Yeah. My reflection is that I'm going to look further into second order cybernetics because we need to be able to do science locally, I think. I feel like uh, when we work in a software team and we want to make our software plus human system better, we can't do this with universal laws anymore. It's too contextual. So we need to be able to study and think about the system that we're in while we're, we're both observing and controlling. So I'm definitely going to look that up some more. A thing that I keeps coming up for me is that we keep having to relearn the lessons of history. We have rediscovered, in some senses, a lot of the lessons of management cybernetics with the Toyota Way and Lean and other things. We have relearned some of the lessons of system cybernetics uh, and Project Cybersyn in SRE and things like that. We keep having to relearn the lessons of history and it just, it reinforces for me the importance of learning about history and learning about culture and learning about how people work as being super necessary for a quote unquote technical career. So I love hearing all of this. I love hearing there's a value in history um, or a value in looking outside of the U.S. or, or Europe uh, for sources of inspiration about computing. So I'm glad that that, that, that resonated with, with all of you. Um, on my part, I really appreciated the connections that you drew to this, to this history. Um, everything from connecting the Project Cybersyn history and the operations room to uh, the feelings uh, that people who are working on a startup might might experience, right? Where they're trying, they have all this stuff going on under the hood, but to the outside world, it, it appears to be this, this really finished, futuristic kind of product. Uh, or to thinking about the role of the observer and how that kept coming back up into our conversation in different ways. Uh, or perhaps, you know, interacting with, with another human being and how we might not be able to see what's going on behind the scenes, but we do have this kind of model of behavior that we can interact with. Uh, to thinking about connections to politics today and Twitter and Facebook, um, I just really enjoyed seeing those kinds of connections. Yeah, because, Rain, to your point, if we relearn something in a different context, we learned something. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Which makes a ton of value in what you do, Eden, because you're bringing ideas from many contexts back and forth and interweaving them. I mean, that's what I hope that this history is doing. And I hope that it's also showing that, you know, a moment of political innovation, which was the popular unity in Chile, also gave rise to a moment of technological innovation and that those moments are, they're, they're intertwined with each other. And I hope that it provides impetus for us to look at other moments of political experimentation or other moments of historical significance and try to see how those moments shape the kinds of technologies that were being built. 
Sweet. Yeah, because you can't really understand a technology until you understand the history, which you're never going to understand all of either. But a little bit doesn't hurt. A little bit doesn't hurt. No, no. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on and giving me an opportunity to talk about cybernetic revolutionaries. Oh, one more point for our listeners. When we recommend the book, one of my favorite things about this book, and I have the physical copy, it smells great. <laughs> it has that beautiful new textbook scent. <laughs> I love it. It's a really well-assembled like physical book, as well as all the material inside. That's really fun. I don't think I've heard that before. It's really nice. I, I like it. I'm so glad that I, I bought the, the book from Amazon. Oh, and a shout-out. We need to give a shout-out to our new Patreon supporter, Becca. Thank you so much. We are glad to have you. And a reminder to all our listeners that Greater Than Code is supported almost entirely by listener donations through our Patreon. And if you donate in any amount, even $1 one time, then you get, the, you get an invitation to join our Slack. And our Slack is super friendly and nice and not too busy. And I like the end. This has been another great episode of Greater Than Code. We'll see you next week. 